Some of you may have noticed how Mike and Valerie are beaming this morning. <laughs> we have two of our servicemen home with us, and it's great to have you guys with us. James, Michael, and Josh. <laughs> Who got carried away back there? <laughs> This morning we're in the book of Revelation and we have turned the corner. We're in chapter 19. No more doom and gloom. No more bowls of wrath being poured out. We now get to look at God's preparation for us. And we will look at the marriage supper of the Lamb this morning. So, a good turn there. Many times, or I should say often, I look upon the battle for souls in this world between heaven and hell, between God and Satan, as being this huge arena where human beings are the prize that, uh, that the big battle is over. In chapter 18, we have commercial Babylon being destroyed, and there's a loud cry of sorrow and mourning from the merchants of the world because of the destruction of their city or cities. Bad guys raising their voice because of their losses. Their lament is described in uh, verse 10 of chapter 18. They say, alas, alas. Now that's not a word we use much anymore. But they crying out for in one hour you have fallen. And they're speaking of commercial Babylon. Then again in verses 16 and 17, alas, alas. Same cry, same results. One hour and you have come to nothing. Everything that sinful man desires, all that the world seeks after, gone in one hour. That should speak loud and clear. It should be a great exhortation for us Christians. Consider where your treasure is. If our security or if our treasure is anything that is materialistic, that rust or moth can eat or destroy, then your world can tumble in one hour. It can come crashing down instantly. We all know that all this financial world needs is a large disaster man-made disaster or a natural disaster people panic they begin to liquidate their holdings try to get money in hand or we can have one large investment group that gets the jitters starts selling off their assets and others quickly follow we can have a country like Iran talk about closing tanker shipping lanes. Oil prices skyrocket. If your hope, if your trust 
is in materialistic things. If your hope is in this world, no wonder you live in a precarious place. You live on that edge, and no wonder fear strikes your heart at every whim of the market. Thank God there is a solution. Jesus talked about that solution 2,000 years ago. It was appropriate then, and it's appropriate now. So, if you will, turn with me. Before we get into the regular sermon, we're going to look at something here. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12, and we'll look at uh, Jesus' teaching about possessions. Luke 22, or 12, 22 through 34. Jesus is teaching a crowd about possessions, and then he turns to the disciples, and in verse 22 we pick it up. He said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouses nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothed the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you would eat or what you would shall drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nation of the world seeks after, and your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have, give alms, provide for yourself money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief can approach nor moth destroy. Then the conclusion. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And how true that is. Why would Jesus say not to worry? Because we do worry. That's obvious. When we finally do make that transition in our life as to where our treasure is, and it is in heaven, and we will sooner or later come around to that conclusion, where the kingdom of God is premier in your life, and God's will is more important than my will, and when our hope and our treasure is in His unfailing kingdom, great peace and security accompanies that transition. It's a peace that no man or institution can give, nor can they take it away. Jesus has given us, if we will just grasp onto it, 
the solution to worry. And which of us are not adept at worrying? <laughs> worrying is probably the easiest thing for us to do. But Jesus wants us to think eternally. He says, get your mind off of the moment, the here and now existing moment, and place your mind and place your energies upon the heavenly. Now he says that. Now he's not looking for us to give a big offering when he says that. But he says, occupy yourselves. Be about my kingdom. The reward is a life of peace. And don't we all want that? Each of us have a responsibility to search out God's call, God's will for our life, and then to walk in it. That is the singular most important chore for any Christian to do. Find out what God has called you to and walk in it. And if we do this, then we too can be like the great multitude in heaven in chapter 19. So let's read chapter 19 of Revelation, or at least the first 10 verses. Revelation 19, 1 through 10. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia. Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who uh, corrupted the earth with her fornication. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sat on the throne, saying, Amen. Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as if it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and the sound of the mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant, and you are of and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We're introduced in chapter 19, verse 1 there, to an international word. Four times this word is repeated. Here and only here in all of Scripture do we hear the word Alleluia, or Hallelujah if you're from the South, which simply means praise the Lord. That's all it means. So why is heaven rejoicing? Why is heaven crying out Alleluia? 
because Jesus has avenged the blood of his servants, which was shed by the great harlot. There is great joy in heaven when the great harlot is judged. Hallelujah from the great multitude in heaven comes from the likes of you and I and the martyred saints. We also have the 24 elders who are joining in with hallelujah. And I have to admit, hallelujah is not a word that I often use, but probably should. The only time I find myself using the word hallelujah is perhaps in a chorus. So what I'm going to do is sing for you now. No. <laughs> you do like attending here, don't you? I don't want to scare you all off. But all of heaven is saying and repeating hallelujah. Rejoicing because God has judged and destroyed His enemies. There is unbridled joy in heaven Heaven is giddy happy. And things are going along and it's about to calm down. And then we have verse 6 and the hallelujahs break out again. Verse 6, hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Our God is omnipotent. Not you or I, or not our president, that would be dangerous. I don't think any man could handle omnipotent power. If you gave me omnipotent power, I wouldn't make it home before I had killed somebody. First driver that cut me off. Hmm? Your history. The first time at a stop sign, you went out of turn. <laughs> Your history. Only God can handle omnipotent power. And there are several reasons for celebration in heaven and several groups that are crying out, Hallelujah. First, they're crying out, Hallelujah, because of salvation. And our salvation should always stir our hearts to praise God and give thanks to God. That should always be an automatic response upon anyone that has been saved. We should never throw around casually the term, I'm saved or I've been redeemed. And sometimes when we do, the world will attack us, they'll mock us, they'll make fun of us, and they will say things like, well, what are you saved from? What are you Christians so afraid of? Well, we're saved from God's judgment. It's that simple. We're saved from God's judgment. We're saved from Satan's hell. We're saved from a meaningless life. Give that a thought for a second. We have a purpose. We have a cause, and it's beyond ourselves. We rejoice. We cry out to God for simply giving our lives meaning. 
I hate to think what I'd be caught up in today if not for the grace of God. What would I be doing if it weren't for salvation? That's a disturbing thought. It has been said, and I like this a lot, I don't know who said it, it's one of those anonymous ones, don't dare be a king if God has called you to be a servant. And that is so true. Our Lord God has saved us to and for Himself. Our God delights in saving man. God loves us and He gives us eternal life so that we can be with Him forever. God wants us to be with Him. That is a truth that makes everything that we go through here in this life, it makes everything worthwhile. It gives everything meaning. It almost is insignificant what we go through in this life because we get to be eternally with our Lord God who loves us. I've often said it's a blessing far too great to even comprehend. But our salvation is total and complete, given to us by our omnipotent God, our personal, our all-powerful God who loves us. And that's so comforting. It really is. God has never, ever abused His omnipotent power. Satan tried to get him to abuse his power when he tempted him. The three great temptations. Jesus did not abuse his power. When Jesus was on the cross, the chief priest and others said to him, mocking him, come down and save yourself if you're the Christ. I have to confess this, and you probably are just like me on this. I want Jesus to come off the cross for just a little while. And I want him to kill and maim a few of the Pharisees. I really do. But then my reasoning kicks in. And I realize that I need Jesus on that cross. And I can't dare take him off. So we celebrate. We rejoice at our all-powerful God who never abuses His power and is in complete control. Another cause for celebration in this passage is God's retribution. Throughout the history of man, we have seen how man questions God questions the fairness of God and the decisions of God. And it, it's not new. Abraham did it way back when Abraham became aware that God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. God, Abraham goes into this bargaining position with God. Would God destroy the city if there was so many righteous there? And Abraham's wanting to know, as God, are you going to be a fair and just God? The, 
That is a question that God allows us to ask. He allowed Abraham to ask it. Now I want you to think of the other religions of the world. A Muslim would never consider asking Allah if that was fair. That is something they never approach. God is way too dreadful, way too fearful to approach him about his decision. A Muslim would never have the courage to approach Allah on, are you being fair? Even their great religious leaders, their mullahs, hope their sins are forgiven. They don't dare assume they are. That's the tenuous position that a Muslim knows. And the Muslims are just like many other religions where you do not dare question your God. Our God is secure enough that He allows us to question Him. Not that I'm suggesting we should. We should walk by faith knowing that God is right. But we all have questions at time and God allows it. Aren't you glad that we're Christians? Back to our text. Verse 2. All of heaven cries out, True and righteous are your judgments, God. When we are given more of the details, when our understanding is more complete, when we too cry out, True and righteous are your judgments, Lord. We don't always cry that out today because we fail to understand our knowledge is not complete and we want to know why God does certain things but I want to assure you that God makes all of his judgments all of his decisions based on complete love complete knowledge and complete justice that's our God our God is a good God we Christians and the rest of the host of heaven celebrate at God's complete dominion and final dominion over everything. And then we approach in chapter 19 an international event of joy and happiness, a marriage. You know, a marriage in every culture is a celebrated good thing. But only in America can we drive through a wedding chapel, not even having to get out of your car, and you can be married right in your car. Viva Las Vegas. <laughs> they will actually marry you right in your automobile, and you don't even have to get out. This passage doesn't suggest that we do that. I don't suggest that you do that. But many couples today, they forego having a wedding and simply move in together and they deny themselves the great joy of a wedding. A wedding ceremony is a time of great joy. And in the Jewish culture, in Jesus' day, weddings didn't go on for an afternoon or a day. They went on for seven days. For a week, you celebrated that wedding. A wedding was a full-blown celebration. 
having been planned out by the parents for months. A time when all your relatives would gather, all your friends would come together, and they would celebrate your marriage. Jesus' first miracle occurs at a happy ceremony, a wedding in Cana of Galilee. John chapter 2 records this. You may want to turn there. I'm going to read you 10 verses. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His, mo his mother said to the servant, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing twenty to thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Then he said to them, Draw some out and make it and take it to the master of the feast, and they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. Jesus, his mother, his disciples are all invited to a wedding. The host of the wedding, he runs out of wine. Now this wedding miracle bothers a lot of Christians today because Jesus turns water into wine. It just plain bothers some people. And I've heard many preachers proclaim that the wine was not alcoholic. Where they come up with that, I cannot begin to tell you. Wine has always been wine, always in Scripture, always fermented, okay? But I want you to look at a couple things here. We get a glimpse of Mary's character, her relationship with Jesus. And we get a glimpse of it at this wedding. She feels pity. She feels sorrow for those who are hosting the wedding. She comes to her son, Jesus, and says, they have no wine. And it's not a request. She didn't say Jesus make wine. It's a statement of fact. They have no wine. But Mary knows her son. And how many times in the past has Jesus met the needs of the family? How many times has Jesus met the request of his mother? We don't know. But I do know this. If you ever plan a party, you count noses. You try to estimate the amount of food you need, and you try to estimate the amount of drinks you will need. 
we have a sign-up sheet for our Valentine's party, for our Valentine's dinner. Why? We want to know how many. All right. <laughs> At this party, the wine runs out. And in that culture, and in that day, this is an unbelievably terrible embarrassment for the host. Just a thought. Just consider, maybe some of the guests are overindulging in the drinking. It's a possibility. <laughs> and then I want you to look at how much wine Jesus makes. Six water pots, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus will make 120 to 180 gallons of wine. Translate that into bottles. That's eight to nine hundred bottles of wine. That's a lot of wine. And there is either a lot of people at this wedding, or there is a lot of drinking at this wedding, one or the other. Perhaps both. But don't miss the point. That's not the point that he turned water into wine. Jesus makes wine to help make a wedding party a happy occasion. Don't miss that. That's what it's all about. That's why he turns the water to wine. He wants to make it a happy occasion. The wedding supper of the Lamb will be a happy occasion. Back to verse 9. John is told, write this down, John, record it. And he says, blessed are those called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're blessed. We're to look upon that marriage supper as a happy occasion to be with our Lord. A heavenly happy occasion. Did you write this down, John? Yep. <laughs> And then he says, for these are great sayings of God. Our God wants us to know he has joy in store for us. A wedding feast, a great wedding feast in heaven. Now, with all the terminology used in Daniel and Revelation, I believe that this wedding feast begins at the time of the rapture as the world goes through seven years of tribulation I believe we will have a seven year wedding feast with our Lord a week of years a seven year wedding feast for we are you and I are the bride of Christ now, a wedding ceremony and a celebration in heaven where the redeemed, the saints of God, and we're honored by our groom, Jesus. He honors us. That, again, is beyond reason sometimes that we would be honored by our Lord. But we, the bride, we're clothed in fine linen clean and bright. 
because our works, our works of righteousness here on earth, God translates those into clean and bright garments. That's a God thing. He can take our works and make them as clothes or garments that we will wear. Yesterday we went over to Lowe's Mill. You know what a mill is? A textile mill? They spin things like cotton into, into a thread, and then they bring, bring thread and they weave it into cloth. Jesus weaves our righteous acts into clean, bright garments that only God can do. So John, he hears of this wedding supper. He's rejoicing. He's crying out, hallelujah, with the rest of them. And John is overcome. He's so overcome <laughs> that he tries to worship at the feet of this angel. And he's rebuked for it. The angel tells John, don't do that. <laughs> John is prone to worship, though, for all that he sees and hears. John is told to worship God. That is something we should never have to be told to do. That should be a natural outflow of any believer. And we're going to worship God in our closing song. So get ready. But first, let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. Father God, the things you have prepared for us, Jesus, are almost like storybook fantasies. They're so good. It's like more than we can comprehend that you would prepare a marriage supper for us, Lord, where you honor us as your bride. And you cleanse us and you give us clean and bright garments to wear, God because of your goodness, because of your sacrifice. So, Lord, help us as your bride to fix our hearts and minds upon the marriage supper of the Lamb. And, Lord, may we not be caught up in this world and all the treasures that this world would supposedly offer us, but may our heart, may our treasure be in heaven. Lord God, help us to think eternally and not temporarily. So, Lord, we read these passages and we rejoice. And our prayer is, come quickly, Lord Jesus. For we've seen enough heartache, we've seen enough of this old world, and we desire you, our groom, our husband, to come and take us. We pray for this, Lord. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we pray in your name, Jesus. And you know the typical blessing I give you? God.